You're listening to The Remix Baby, a podcast about fertility, family, and genetics. I'm Jana Rupnow, a fertility counselor and author of Three Makes Baby. Welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome today uh, with a special episode. We're back talking about male infertility, and I have a guest with me that I actually connected with you, Vince, through Amira. Uh, she told right. me about you when uh, we spoke, I think on our podcast episode, and that you would, would were a great resource for men. And you're up in Canada, right? That's absolutely right. Yeah, London, Ontario, or nice. as we like to call it here, the other London. Okay, great. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about your background and how long you've been supporting uh, men with infertility and just how, you know, kind of give me a little bit about your experience and knowledge about it too, uh, because I know that you've probably been doing this as long as I have, like sounds like around 10 years, right? That's right, Jana. That's right. Um, I did want to say thank you so much for having me on. Um, Amira and I have had the chance to work together over the last few years in a couple of contexts, and it was great to hear your interview with her. Oh, and uh, it's great to be able to make the connection with you. Thank you, Jana. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I was glad to hear that there are guys like you out there that um, can be a great resource and just t- be a voice also for men who feel like they can't and- talk about this. So. And you know that that's exactly what's happening. Um, When we discovered that I was infertile, and so just to be upfront about it, I'm an infertile man. Um, As you were interviewing with Nick a little while ago, um, complete azospermia, unexplained. Mm -hmm. And when we got that diagnosis back in, wow, I think it was 2000, um, we didn't know anybody going through this, right? You know, you know. You, you know, there's always some friends in your circle, you know, maybe that elderly couple who, um, you know, never had children and it was never clear, mm-hmm. you know, why they didn't or, you know, whatever, exactly. but no one really exactly. talked about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so, you know, when we started going through this, um, not only was it a complete shock to our, our perception of the world and how things would work, but we also didn't know where we were going to go to get support. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there was just no support there. And I'm sure, you know, it was very similar to what was happening here in the States, you know, or and culturally in terms of no one talking about it, no support, even really at that time, not as much, really very little for women as well. There was resolve here. Um, That's right. But still, it was still a very quiet, secretive type of, of meetings that you, you would have, very private. And so there wasn't a lot of public uh, awareness or knowledge about infertility. So yeah, very lonely time for women and even more lonely, I'm sure for, for men. I think so. I mean, I think, I think there are some, you know, male stereotypes. There's a certain jocular approach to manhood around, you know, uh, one's fecundity or, you know, ability to reproduce that are just taken for granted, I think, in some elements of male society. And it certainly didn't feel like you know, men were going to stand up and shout from the rooftops, I can't make a baby, right? Yeah. Or uh, I'm shooting blanks, as, as you might have said, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you know, and it also brought a whole host of social stigma. I mean, whether it was, you know, questions about your morality, you know, does that make you some kind of, you know, James Bond type female predator, you know, roaming the universe, you know, looking for a free good time or you know, there's just all sorts of social types and confusion that comes around male sexuality. Mm-hmm. And and the 
the whole intersection of you know sexuality and reproduction, which are not necessarily the same thing. Uh, you know, it, it was really hard to find you know role models of folks who are working through it. And I think one of the great things that's transpired over the last 20 years has been, you know, that there are more people willing to speak out, um, and that there are more people who are normalizing this. Uh, Jenny, you've been in professional practice for quite a while. Mm -hmm. I, I take it as a given that the rate of infertility is increasing in the developed world. Um, but you know, are you seeing, like in terms, maybe we don't know that it's increasing, but more people are willing to talk about it. You know, how much of your practice are you seeing an increase in folks who are, you know, just want to deal with infertility? Yeah, I've definitely seen an increase in folks that are willing to talk about it over the years and actually come to counseling. I think that's right. in the pre in the past, people thought that they didn't, um, there wasn't a need for it, like almost like they weren't being strong enough. And yeah. why would they need to go to counseling for this? Uh, and that's been a hard thing to overcome and educate is that infertility is a time where of, you know, of anything that you go through in life, it is one of the most important times to go to counseling and it's normal to go to counseling and to need counseling for that. Um, so I think there was this attitude that you had to be strong and just get through it quietly. And boy, that was just been really tough on people psychologically over the years. So seeing the increase in people willing to talk about that is I really think helping people's mental state um, while they're going through the, the process. And I think when there's an unknown around it, there's a fear. How is this information going to be used against me? You know, what will my peers think? What will my employers think? What will my social circle think? You know, whether that's my religious community or my, you know, basketball team or, you know what I'm saying? Whatever. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it feels like we have collectively pushed back some of the boundaries of stigma to the point where more men and more women feel, uh, you know, that it's appropriate to even talk about this journey with their close friends uh, and maybe even more broadly. Yeah. I think at one point I remember Rizal was talking about one in eight couples suffer from infertility. And as over the years, that number is gradually changing to now I hear one in seven, one in six. So yeah, I do think it's on the rise, as you mentioned. Um, and it's affecting not just if it doesn't affect you personally, then almost everyone knows somebody that's been through it. That's a right. close friend, a family member. So it is touching everyone's lives, really. So as we think about that journey um, over the last few years, you mentioned a couple of components that I think are really important. When we first started on this journey, we didn't know what to do. And not unlike Nick or other guys you'll talk to, we just kind of sat on it. I didn't know what to think, right? I didn't know what it meant about my role in our in our marriage because we'd always envisioned having children i didn't know what it meant about my my role in society as a man i didn't know i didn't know what to do and you know when i got that diagnosis a well-meaning doctor just walked into the exam room i was just there to uh to get the results from a testicular biopsy and he said well you have complete azospermia there's no sperm there we don't know why it's unexplained uh you might consider adoption or donor sperm any questions yeah, <laughs> and and you know, <laughs> of course I have questions, but I couldn't articulate them at the time. And so, when we were ready to act, we met uh, here at our local hospital, uh, the fertility clinic at London Health Sciences Centre here in London, Ontario, is uh, one of the few, if not the only, 
hospital-based fertility clinics uh, left in Canada, most of it's private practice. And as it reports to the hospital ethics board and the hospital had close connections with uh, the Ministry of Health at both the provincial and federal levels, uh, there was a requirement for counseling. And a lot of people, I just read an article today uh, somebody relating their fertility journey, and, and they echoed this, that a lot of people see that counseling appointment as, a, you know, a gatekeeper, someone who's going to approve or disapprove of their um, mm-hmm. application, if you will, to proceed with, mm-hmm. you know, some kind of donor conception or assisted mm-hmm. reproduction. And, and there can be no doubt that, I mean, it's in everybody's best interest to identify, you know, the mental health of the participants involved. But when we mm-hmm. went to counseling, we found it to be one of the most rewarding and valuable experiences that we've had. And, mm-hmm. you know, I really think it needs to be said that uh, mm-hmm. counseling is undervalued, I think, by the, mm-hmm. the infertile or, or donor conception seeking community um, mm-hmm. for some of the reasons that, that I just mentioned, maybe more. And, and that my experience was that through a number of sessions with our counselor, her name uh, is Jean, uh, and she retired in 2010, um, we were able to work through a host of issues, a lot like uh, I have a copy of your workbook in front of me here. You know, a lot of these issues around how does this path that you're choosing to build your family, um, how does it intersect with your perceptions of yourself, with your perceptions of your family, with your perceptions of, you know, religion and society and the various things. And that by articulating those and taking time to think through them, we could become more well-adjusted about the choices that we were making. And so um, Mm -hmm. I highly recommend that anyone who is going down, not just, uh, you know, assisted reproduction, but, you know, third party like donor gametes, um, really, uh, really tuck in and find a good counselor that helps them talk through and helps them make sense within their own worldviews of the implications of the choices that they're making. I agree. That's something that you can, a counselor can help you work through those narratives that we tell ourselves yeah, that's you know, right. about our life experiences and help reframe those for you. So you can move forward in a, in a way that is, you know, a little, you can have, put some closure on your grief. It's so powerful. And I think, uh, and I recommend to anybody I talk to about this, I think there's a real role for the professional counselor because I think there are things, dare I say, that we ought to think about when we approach donor conception. I mean, I think this is a, um, a subject and a decision, a set of decisions that has impact on a person we're going to create that involves us in new and unfamiliar relationships, even if it's with a donor number in a catalog, right? Mm -hmm. And that has implications for the rest of our natural lifetime. Mm -hmm. And so there are just some things we really want to get situated. I remember, uh, I haven't spent a lot of time talking about our story yet, and maybe we'll get to a summary of it, but one highlight that's relevant to this point is that when Lori and I first started looking at our options, we attended an adoption conference, an overnight retreat, and it was the first time we were ever in a room with 20 other couples who were in the same situation we were. And it was so validating to just you know, find, uh, there's a certain normalcy that you establish. You're asking yourself mm-hmm. all the time, why did this happen to me? You know, why, mm-hmm. is there something uniquely wrong with me? Is the universe or, or my God, or, or is there some message someone's trying to send me that, you know, this very natural and normal and expected part of life isn't happening for us. 
Mm-hmm. And you sat for the first time. We sat in a room full of people who were in the same boat, similar ages, having the same grief and the same struggles. And not only was that super validating, but here in Ontario, adoption is conducted by default as open adoption. And the adoption mm-hmm. process, the adoption institution, has learned from experience. And this is something that I know you can speak to much much better than I can from your own personal experiences. But in Ontario, the adoption industry has learned from experience that enough adopted people have a, a genuine and lasting yearning to understand their, their connection, their biological origins, and that, that uh, biological family that by default, that's going to be available to all adopted people unless there's some you know, very serious security reason why identity needs to remain undisclosed. And so mm-hmm. they seeded those thoughts in our minds, even though we ended up pursuing donor conception. And one of the key thoughts that they shared was, you need to take time to work through your grief. No matter what you do from this point forward, you will not fix the fact that you are infertile. Mm-hmm. The baby you bring into your home, mm-hmm. you know, as you have success, if you, ha- if you know success, the baby you bring in your home is not a fix. It's not a cure. That's right. That's it's, right. it's a baby who will have mm-hmm. his or her own needs based on the nature right. of how they got brought into your family. And as long mm-hmm. as you view that child as allowing you to paper over, cover up, or not deal with your grief uh, mm-hmm. in, in uh, being infertile, you know, mm-hmm. you may be making choices that are not as well geared to the best outcome for that child. And so we really took Mm -hmm. that message to heart and we thought, wow. Mm -hmm. It's hard to hear, isn't it? (laughs) But but sometimes we need people to give us permission, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know why, but we do. To grieve. And they uh, got to grieve, right? To actually acknowledge that this is a loss worthy of grieving versus just something we need to tough through, like you were saying earlier. Absolutely. Yeah. And you need to know it's okay and that there is a real reason to it. It's not just a small reason. It's a very profound right. and life-changing reason. So there, there are some parallels with adoption. They're not perfect parallels, but there are a lot. And I know you have a lot of personal experience there. Um, you know, does that story spark any, anything from you about, uh, you know, translating uh, that mindset over to approaching, you know, third-party assisted human reproduction? Yeah, naturally it does. It's, you know, I saw the same concerns. It was funny when I started out doing adoption counseling, that was my first experience. Of course, I have a lifetime of experience with that. So I knew all of these issues. I've read shelves and shelves of books about adoption. I I know it intimately, all of the the trauma, the grief, the, you know, the sadness, the the lifelong um, challenges that can come up with it. And I'd also found that there were a lot of books written about adoption were very trauma-based and very sad and very kind of grim. You know, the reading right. of those books was, was not pleasant whatsoever. And when I finally found a book I really enjoyed was called It's Adoption, The Lifelong Search for Self. And it was written by researchers, not by adopted okay. people, which I thought was great. Um, this this book really was the first book that I could read and, and read about developmental challenges along the way. It resonated with such truth. And it was also a, a more of a neutral look, but a very honest look at the challenges and I thought this is the voice that the donor conception field also needs. It needs a voice that can identify issues that could come up and challenges that can tell, be honest about some of the things that, that parents may face and that sure. their children may face, but not be doom and gloom and not be focused too much on the pain and the wounding and the hurt because it is there. So my approach was to, to, to basically, once I started moving into third-party conception, 
I really kept those separate for a while, adoption and third party, and I kept the ideas of them separate. As I, over the years, I began to see and I could, I could siphon out what was, what was absolutely the same and what was different. And, you know, that's something I probably should write a book about at some point if I have the time. But, but you know, that is where I am able to kind of see that difference and use that to help my clients today. And also, like I said, bring a voice that's not, uh, that, that has a voice of healing, essentially, that's is right. what I want to bring. But at first we do, ha- in order to heal, we first have to see what has been hurt. And if we can't see what has been hurt, then we're not going to be able to heal it. And that's where, you know, when you give permission for people to grieve, you can allow them to see where they've been hurt. That's right. So then the healing can happen. And sometimes healing is really not pretty, not a pretty picture. There can be pain and anguish and rage in the healing. And that's, that's hard for people to see, but it is a normal part of healing as long as you don't get stuck there for too long. Absolutely. Well, as we're talking here, I'm reminded of one other major component, I think, that really helped us work through um, some of that grief, move into, you know, a positive ability to move forward with building our family and to find grounds on which to build that family that are, you know, certainly has been our goal and we hope and we believe are respectful, you know, to our, our children as people, because they don't say children and, you know, as people in the and, and equipping them. And that second component that was really helpful was peer support. I wouldn't trade off the counseling we had for the world. And I also mm-hmm. am so glad that, that our counselor was in the process, had been running for quite some time, a peer support group where mm-hmm. folks would get together who are either intended parents or parents through donor conception. And they would get together in a conversation circle and talk about their experiences and share their learning. and as a intended parent, so we're looking at this must have been in 2003, 2004, as an intended parent, stepping into a support group was just as powerful or more powerful than that adoption conference. Because here I was now among a group of my peers who faced the exact same situation. And at the time, overwhelmingly, it was male infertility. And okay. here mm-hmm. for the first time are some other men who are willing to speak up in a group face to face to be to risk being recognized wow. in public, you know, amongst wow. those who attended in this circle to talk Amazing. about yeah. their experience, to normalize that. And I've found over the years that we've done support group work and our support group, um, we operate under Donor Conception Canada and we facilitate, you know, peer led mutual aid, if you will. We, okay. We've found that uh, the, the real power of the support group for intended parents is that donor conception is so new to them and it, it seems so out of the ordinary and so unlike anything they imagine themselves doing to build a family that they just want to meet some other people and find out how weird they are. You know, they want to find <laughs> out, is everybody kind of normal weird or is this some weird thing I want to stay away from, you know, with a 10-foot <laughs> pole, so to speak, right? And it's so like there's a, a mirroring, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There, yeah, there's, there's a power in just coming into a room and saying, oh, okay, okay, every, everybody's within the range of normal here, right? This is, this is something normal mm-hmm. people do, you know, mm-hmm. when they find themselves in, you know, extraordinary situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And there is a, you know, when you feel like you're socially out, you know, an outsider, um, because something happens to you in your life for various right. reasons that make you feel different socially, 
you do try to find people like you that have been through what you have been. Maybe they're ahead of you on the path so they can give you some right. wisdom and some pointers and uh, and then just so you don't feel uh, so isolated and alone because you can't talk about it other places. And it, even if you do talk about it outside of those circles, sometimes you are met with just a lack of understanding simply sure. because the other people, they haven't been through those experiences. So it can be, um, yeah, it's th- those, the peer groups are, we know from research too, are, are one of the best things you can do, especially for women. But that's what I wanted to ask you is as yeah. a man, do you find the peer groups are as helpful? Because I know sometimes men need different things than women do. So we don't want to assume that that you need the same thing psychologically and emotionally than that we do. Um, but it sounds like, yes, it, the peer groups do Absolutely. really work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's room for more and more just sort of male conversation, but even changing the dynamic, it it feels like traditionally, and I won't go on much here because I'm not a sociologist, but it feels like we as a society or certainly as a gender, men have largely outsourced or or pushed off the work of fertility to the women. And so... Mm. The women attend the support groups. The women are asking questions on behalf of their men because their men, you know, have adopted a role where they're not willing to appear vulnerable or they're not interested in seeking support or they're somehow embarrassed or shamed of the circumstance they find themselves in. And it makes a huge difference Mm -hmm. to just have a few men in the room. It changes the dynamic for for all participants. The women no longer feel like they're being tasked with carrying this emotional work. Uh, on behalf of, you know, the men in their lives. And and the Absolutely. men feel like they have a space to open up where they've come to meet someone that they can trust, that can respect social boundaries. You know, we open up every meeting, you know, with just that that gentle reminder and encouragement that everything we say here, including the, you know, the identity of each other, our presence in this meeting is confidential, right? And we want to mm-hmm. feel like we can share with each other where we really are in our journeys, what questions we have, and what we've learned you know, in a way that feels safe. And it makes Mm -hmm. a huge difference um, to be able to, for that conversation, to not feel like you've intruded into a meeting where the conversation is the other gender's conversation, but somehow you showed Mm -hmm. up, right? Yeah. I wonder too, if, do you feel that, you know, and I'll explain, in many, many couples that I see, the, it's very common for the man to support his wife, to want to be um, you know, kind of that rock, that, right. you know, place that's strong. And if my wife breaks down crying, I have to be strong. Is there a thought? And, um, you know, often, and that's, it can be very, that's very helpful. But at the same time, if you, if the woman perceives that he's not feeling it as much as she right. is, then again, she might feel like she's, like you said, carrying the task of it. So do you find that when you meet in these groups that maybe the men are able to relax a little and take the weight off their shoulders a bit and allow maybe the weight of, of the problem to sort of go to the room and let down their guard a bit so they can almost just not shoulder so much. Yes. You know? Yes. Just as, just as you described, uh, what we see is men beginning to voice their concerns in the conversation. What does it mean to my role or my place in the marriage if I'm infertile and my wife has to turn to some other man you know, in air quotes and big, scary air quotes, right? Has to turn to some other man to make the baby she's always wanted. Mm -hmm. What does it, what does it mean to me 
what, will I be able to parent this child? Will I secretly reject this child? You know, mm -hmm. there's a, a lot of concerns about doing the job right and, and questions mm -hmm. about because you just don't have another model for relating to it. I mean, our default model is more or less normally genetic. That's how we decide who eats dinner here tonight and who has to go back home to their house, right? You know, we allocate resources to some degree. We draw boundaries. And, you know, genetics is an easy uh, line to appeal to in many circumstances for that. So they're working through these issues for the first time. They're able to express some of their concerns about how they're able to support their spouse, about where they might be or their partner, where they might be, you know, in different places emotionally in the journey. And it's not yeah. uncommon for, especially in heterosexual couples at the meeting, for one party or the other to be in a different place. You know, yeah, one's still processing grief, one's still holding on to hope for, you know, the more mm -hmm. idealized dream of their family, while the other is eager to move on for a variety of reasons. Yes, so, so true. And that's mm -hmm. not always it doesn't always fall out on the gender lines that one might expect, right? It's That's typical right. to assume right. that the woman's aware of her biological clock and she's in more of a hurry. And can the man get with the game, you know, to oversimplify. But I've often run into other situations where, you know, the man in the relationship is concerned that, you know, his partner continues to grieve what can't be, uh, you know, and isn't as ready to move forward, you know, where, where the man may have reconciled himself to this idea of, quote unquote, another man's sperm. And, and their partner is still struggling because they're like, I picked you. I don't want to pick another man, right? Yes. Well, what do you make? There's some early studies and they're small sample sizes. So that's important to be said. And definitely we would like to see more studies long-term about the psychological and social aspects of donor conception. But we've seen in some early studies that men that use donor sperm to conceive in their relationship um, may have a slightly different or harder time with satisfaction with their parenting in general than women who use egg donors um, with their husband in order to have a child. You know, I, there's, we can only speculate about that. There's no, you know, there's no evidence that we have to know why that's happening. And I have my own speculation. Sure. But what do you make of that? First of all, I think it's very important to continue psychosocial research in the space. I know I'm an active participant in research studies as they come along, and I, I forward mm -hmm. and promote those. I think there's a lot of things that we want to understand, and even possibly some, some things that we all accept as good practice that I doubt we're going to discover isn't good practice, but that would certainly be shored up by you know, uh, quantified research, right? So mm -hmm. I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of that kind of participation with regard to these particular findings uh, that men may express uh, a lower level of satisfaction with their parenting. Um, I, I can only say anecdotally that the satisfaction level that some of the men in the group and that I experienced with my parenting uh, increased the more I was able to reconcile especially where I'm the, the genetic non-relative, where I'm the one who's not genetically mm -hmm. connected, or the man's not genetically connected, where they're mm -hmm. able to reconcile that their genes are less important of a heritage to them than their mm -hmm. values. So let okay. me explain that. I, I don't mm -hmm. mean to say that genes are unimportant. I think we all acknowledge, and we started off this conversation with the notion that those who have a genetic heritage separate from their sort of social parentage, you know, there is a yearning and a need that's often expressed there, you know, something that is widely felt and is clearly, I don't know who we are to judge legitimacy, but let's call it, you know, there's a legitimate and powerful need there, right? Mm -hmm. But for the parent who's not biologically related, 
the the sooner you're able to move from I've failed because I couldn't pass on my genes, and I know I certainly worked through this, to mm-hmm. really the most important thing I received from my ancestors that I can really put my finger on is not some nebulous effects of you know nurture versus nature of some genetic combination I got, but the stories that I inherited of my forebears, mm-hmm. whether they're stories that I remember of my parents' sacrifice or my grandparents' sacrifices. Those are the mm-hmm. stories that we pass on, and those stories capture values, and that's why they're, they're important to us. It's why we repeat them. And when we recognize that regardless of this genetic connection that I may not have with my children, they are still the inheritors of those stories because those stories mm-hmm. shaped me. And, mm-hmm. and we all know that the genes shaped us, but for most of us, let's face it, genes are like magic. We can all appeal to them. You know, maybe I play the, you know, maybe I sing well because one of my ancient ancestors was a musician, but it may as well just be voodoo, right? We don't know. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. you know, we know that genes are important. We know they have an effect, but as lay people, we really, we really can't point to a particular chemical combination and say, well, this is why I'm good at something. We all recognize mm-hmm. that nurture plays a big part in that. Mm-hmm. But we, but while genetics may be confusing to us, it's not confusing to us the, the values that we pass down in our stories. So when we're having a support group conversation, men are able to move through, let's say through rather than beyond, but through that grief of the loss of genetic connection to that recognition that they are the holders of stories that will influence the character and personalities of their children, regardless of the lack of genetic connection then I think they feel they're participating more fully in that parenting relationship because they've de-emphasized whether they genetically helped create the child and they've re-emphasized their role in shaping that person. Yeah. So you're able, what you're doing is pointing out that there's a separation of our genetics and uh, the, basically the stories and the experiences that we all live and that those stories and experiences have a much greater role than people realize if you have never experienced a family that was different from you genetically. So if you always were raised in a family that everyone was related genetically, you might just naturally think that experience, stories, inheritance, genes are all weaved together inextricably. But in fact, they aren't. (laughs) They can be, but when you have a family that's not fully biologically related, those stories and the experiences become family. That is family. And I I can even think that it changes over your lifetime. So whatever your child is feeling at a certain stage of development, know that it changes. That's why I love this book. And I go back to this book about the lifespan. And when you spoke earlier to this is a decision that affects you, it's a lifelong decision. That's not to scare you. That's just to say that this, this will come up in various ways, whether small or large, across a person's entire life. But that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. And no. so, you know, I'll give you an example. When I was a child, my, my dad's side of the family is, um, uh, uh, he always says he's Heinz 57, sure. which cracks yep. me up because I would, dad, what are you? And um, really it's uh, some kind of German, Polish, I'm not really sure. But I uh, remember we talk about relatives and I would think about my dad's relatives and my grandpa and my grandma. And I love them. Of course, they're my grandma and grandpa. But, you know, I knew, I always felt sort of a, a difference, you know, like, darn it, I'm not really related to them genetically. Like I don't look like them as much. I don't have, you know, their ancestors. I can't feel that connection to their ancestors because it's not really my genetic connection. And since I don't know them, 
those people in the black and white white photos, I can't connect with them. Where maybe if I was genetically related, I would find a way to, I I don't know. So I did feel a disconnect there. However, I was just talking to my dad the other day and I was remembering, you know, it's quarantine. We're in quarantine. We're in social isolation. We've been growing a small vegetable garden in our backyard for the first time. Like I remember it took me back to being a child and my grandpa had a huge garden. It took up a whole acre or more. Um, and we used to run through it and we used to pick the potatoes and we, you know, pull, dig up the potatoes and, you know, run through the corn stalks. And I just, right. I mean, have a visceral memory of it and of the smells and sounds and sights. And, um, and then, you know, every time I'm out in the garden, it takes me back. And I just think of my grandpa and his, his uh, little root cellar. And, you know, he always, uh, you know, the way he called potatoes, kadokas and, you know, it was just, um, <laughs> yep. it, yeah, it was just, Really? Uh, and then I talked to my dad on the phone and I said, dad, did you grow up with a, a big garden too? I mean, you know, this is how, even though I can't connect maybe with the pictures of these relatives, these that are gone and passed sure. away and I never met, I, it doesn't matter. Those people don't necessarily matter to me today. And if we really think about it, I mean, the stories are great, at the, how we got to the US and things like that. But yeah. what makes the family of who we are today is those experiences and those shared things. And I felt connected to my grandpa when I'm out in the garden, looking at the peas, wondering if, you know, what he did in the garden too. That to me, that's way more family than anything else to me. And it has nothing to do with genes. So, yeah. All of which is to say, as, as we both know that, you know, we don't want to minimize the importance of genes and genes will make different opinion different people have different meaning out of of their genetic connection but it is to emphasize the value of experiences and stories um uh, one of my great uncles whom uh i just barely knew before he passed away um i remember he was a very elderly man he was in the nursing home and i went to visit him and he was telling me about his tomatoes which he believed you know his legend was that those were seeds brought over from italy that yeah. those plants were the, you know, I mean, those are just uh-huh. little stories, right? That yeah. were, you know, yeah. that one did, wasn't particularly ripe with maybe values, <laughs> although there is yeah. something to say there about, you know, having enough yeah. passion and care for something. Um, and we can yeah. draw value lessons out of all sorts of stories. But oh, so far absolutely. today, we've been talking about um, how, you know, sort of drawing from my experiences, drawing from your experiences, how we felt supported in this journey. We've, we've emphasized the role of professional counselors and we've emphasized the role of peer support. And we've, we've brought that home a bit here in my story about male infertility and uh, supporting men who are experiencing infertility. But a lot of what we said today could be applied across a, a spectrum. Really coming to coming to a place where you view the experiences and values that you're passing to your children as being at least as important, if not more important than your lack of genetic connection uh, applies to, you know, women who are using donor eggs as well as men who are using donor sperm. So there's, there's something there for anyone who is grieving that lack of genetic connection and wondering what it means to their parenting going forward. Uh, everybody's mileage will vary, but certainly in our experience, um, I would experience occasional bouts of grief about being the end of my family line. Uh, although I'm nearly six foot four and uh, blonde hair and blue eyed, I'm full blooded Italian. And you know, there was always these fun stories, and those are some those are some quirky pieces of identity that I didn't pass on genetically to my children. But mm-hmm. my experience of grief as an infertile. Uh, non-genetically related parent, just to generalize it, 
uh, certainly decreased when I recognized the important role of passing forward those ex those values and stories and then creating experiences with my kids. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's um, well articulated and gives people something to really kind of sink their teeth into and think about. Yeah, and genes are certainly important. I think in different times in my life, they were more important for different yeah. reasons, whether it's, yeah. you know, a teenager and I'm trying to understand myself better or That's right. I remember when I had my son, uh, I had thoughts that came up and questions and curiosities uh, about how much did he look like my genetic relatives That's and where right. did he get things. So it can come up at different stages. So even a young person that doesn't seem to be interested in their genetics at all, it, it, it doesn't mean it'll stay that way. They may, may not find they're curious until they're 35 and, you know, some health issue comes up. So just keeping it, that in mind that it's just such a, it's not a static topic. This is something that just is ever changing and um, it's fascinating. It's really fascinating. And, you know, I haven't always felt positive about my situation. I've definitely had my periods of intense grief and For anger. Sure. And, so. You brought up, you brought up something there. I, I want to chip in on real quick, which is mm -hmm. that notion of, you know, how do I talk to my children? And I think in a world where there's still a lot of stigma attached to the infertile person, the non-genetic parent, and in a world where possibly there's even more stigma for whatever reason on men who are unable to reproduce, there's a lot of question around, do I tell my children? Can't we just pay for this over? Why do we have to highlight this distinction? And as you just shared, you know, part of those reasons are to help our children to be well adjusted, to avoid the burden of carrying lifetime secrets and to mm -hmm. equip our children to have the freedom. I, I would go so far as to say, you know, to honor our children's right, you know, to be an informed participant in this process, even if they weren't there when we made the decisions that created them. But, you know, regardless of that, there, there is that positioning of your, your child, positioning of their story. And so sometimes I'll have dads ask me, you know, when do you, when do you start talking to your kid about this? Or when do you tell them? And much like what you write in your books, Jana, um, I like to help them, I like to expose them to the notion, help them think of the disclosure as a journey rather than an event. It's not that when they're five, you're going to dump some facts on them that they're going to somehow remember for the rest of their life. It's that when they were one, you started telling them a story using a little storybook at bedtime every now and then so that you could get the words out, so that you could deal with the tears and the grief that you might be working through as you deal mm -hmm. with your own perception of your, uh, <laughs> I can mm -hmm. re recall those that quite vividly, sorry. You know, as you're working through your own perception of grief so that you become comfortable with the story and it's not something shameful to you. It's not something shameful at all, but you no longer feel that it's shameful. And then when they're four mm -hmm. or five and you're reading the story to them again, I don't know, a couple times a year, whenever that is. And, you know, they have a few questions and then they express no interest. And when they're six or seven and the conversation changes and the story becomes maybe a little more age appropriately detailed, you know, there's there's never a time when they don't remember this as just being a fact of life. And um, I know if you ask my my children today, they're 15, 13, and nine. When did you first learn you were donor conceived? They just stare at you blankly. <laughs> they don't know. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's been a conversation exactly. our whole lives. It's something mom mm -hmm. and dad are comfortable enough to talk about. They don't feel they have to avoid it for fear of hurting dad's feelings or hurting mom's feelings or bringing up something uncomfortable. 
And a lot of that prep work of the disclosure journey and helping them decide what sense they want to make of it came when they were really, quite frankly, pretty young. And and we were telling them a story they didn't understand at all, but which was mm-hmm. about us preparing ourselves to help them make sense of it later in life. Yeah, absolutely. And when you say bring that up about, you know, not wanting they don't have to worry about hurting your feelings that's as right. a parent. That's a really, that's a big one. Um, because a lot of children, um, parents will say to me, well, my, my child doesn't have any questions. They don't talk about it at all. They don't care about it one bit, but then the child will tell me that they actually do and I, they don't bring it up to their parent because they don't want to hurt their feelings. That's and right. that is when that happens, it's, um, I tell parents that, you know, to avoid that is, is to have those conversations and open dialogue about donor conception or adoption along the way. And to even ask pointed questions at, you know, tune into your child's experiences and children express grief in different ways. They act up behavior, they may have outbursts and they don't often understand what emotions are coming up, especially in middle childhood and even teenager years. So you as the parent have to be their emotional mind too, and sort of have to be an investigator and look at what may be coming up for them that they're not even consciously aware of, not to create something, but just to to ask the question. That's right. And they're smart enough at that point, once you ask the question to know whether that's the truth or not, and they can say, you know, that's not it at all. Or they'll say, you know, maybe. And then you're actually, even if they don't, even if you don't have an opportunity to sit down and figure it all out, then you are at least sending the message to your child that you are open to talking about this, even the hard stuff. Mm -hmm. That's right. So I think that's really important. You know, it's kind of funny, Jana. Um, What I'll hear from folks, and one thing I certainly was worried about when this was all new and unknown to us, is actually quite the opposite. We anticipate an angry teenager shouting, you're not really my parent, intending to hurt us, Mm -hmm. intending to make Mm -hmm. us feel uncomfortable. And and I like to laugh at that now. I like to say Mm -hmm. in response to that, um, you know, I have no insecurity about my role as the parent here, you know, that, 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 that I can laugh that off now. But when you're first yes. going into this, you you don't know that, right? You don't know that it's it going to be okay. Yeah. yeah, It's scary. And you also don't know that children, because you're dealing with your own insecurities and feeling yeah. of inadequacies at that point, your own grief, the idea that your child would bring this up feels too painful. But that's the point exactly, is to get to the place where you have worked through that. That's so right. if, when your child brings it up, you can separate your emotional reactions from their emotional reactions. So you know that when a child brings us up, they may not be feeling the intense grief you're feeling in that moment. They may be just testing you to make sure that you that you love them. Or they may That's be right. at times even just using it as an opportunity to get mad about the fact that you took their car keys away from them. I mean, there's so many, yeah. right? There's so many other reasons. And and if you don't get your own, it's like a therapist. We don't get our own agenda in the way, our own stuff that's coming up, when we get that out of the way, then we can see what's truly coming up for our clients and not make it about us. So it's same goes for the parents. You've got to get your own stuff out of the way. That means you have to work through it. Then you can be, um, you have that clarity when you're working with your children and they're going through the challenges. Because when right. you have double grief, um, when you have infertility grief and genetic loss grief colliding with each other um, in a relationship, it is really difficult to sort out and really create a lot of unhealthy patterns and habits in the relationship. Um, one being, we, I'll go back to the theory about the men 
yeah. um, maybe not feeling comfortable about their parenting. Um, you know, men and women have both said to me that they, because they hadn't worked through their grief, they kept their child at an arm length distance because they were afraid mm. their child would reject them mm, later uh-huh. in life when they knew. So this is important, you know, thing to, to work through so you can allow that attachment to happen. That's right. So I think that is spot on. Absolutely. Right. That is the most challenging part of my work is breaking it down and giving it to people as they're ready. Um, these different levels of, and layers really to this process because it's complex, isn't it? It is. And I know that when we first started attending the support group, um, you know, nearly a year before our first child was born, um, you know, we heard all sorts of things. And I'm sure we heard many things, but we weren't ready to receive all of it at once. And so you just absorbed a little bit of it. You mulled over it. You worked through it. You made meaning out of it yourself. And then you went back again and the next counseling session, the next support group session, and you were able to make sense of it. Yeah, it takes time. And um, trusting that process, trusting the yeah. time and the healing. And as long as you're taking those little steps, it's like the little steps lead to the big, you know, the big destination. So it's one little step at a time. And I know a lot of people are ready to race across the finish line, but it's, it's, it doesn't work that way. So I think it's just reminding people that to be patient and compassionate with yourself along the way too. And, I, and you mentioned the time aspect and, you know, perhaps some of us had the luxury of attending multiple spaced out counseling sessions and support group meetings. But one of the things that can really help, um, and I hope you don't mind if I put a plug in here for your book, is to have <laughs> material at hand that you can work mm-hmm. through at your own pace, right? Like mm-hmm. I think many of us remember having some kind of book, you know, what to expect when you're expecting or some kind of journal, you know, and going mm-hmm. through a pregnancy. Um, and, and learning how to celebrate what was going on, you know, as the fetus was developing, you know, and, and the stages of development into the baby that you would be holding. But there's, there's also sort of a layer upon layer approach to coping with these things. And Three Makes Baby mm-hmm. is a wonderful resource. There you go. <laughs> I'm, thank I'm you. saying well, thank that genuinely. Janet and Payne uh, say this. I know. You know, I know, it's a right? wonderful <laughs> resource for working through this at your own pace, whether whether that's quickly, you know, more quickly than some kind of periodic meetings, whether that's in supplement, uh, to really help you mm-hmm. get your head around uh, the the issues that you want to work on as you go through yeah. uh, donor conception. So true. I had a parent that reached out to me that said, you know, they had read my book and during pregnancy and their baby's here now and some issues that, that weren't necessarily top of mind during the pregnancy are now coming up for them. And so they're going back to the book again. And just, that's exactly what I wanted it for. Cause I know that this is layers and it takes time. And, you know, we might think that we've, we don't have an issue at this point, but then years later, it, wow, here it is. Okay. Now yeah. I get it. And just yeah. having those little pieces in place that can kind of click, it makes it, if it makes it click for you faster or helps you work through it quicker and that's what it's all about. So yeah, thank you for that. That's, um, I knew also, I usually only see uh, clients for one session that's and right. I would, the sessions were always overwhelming because just right. like we're talking about, we've barely scraped the surface here. And so then I said, I thought this isn't going to work. I'm going to ha- they're going to need something <laughs> <Yeah>. to go home with. <laughs> this is, well, I can't possibly well, handle this in one session. Well, I think this is one of the things, areas that we could improve in this practice. You know, there is very typically mm-hmm. that sort of onboarding session, you know, the one session with the counselor that's maybe provided with the fertility services or recommended or even required. But 
that's really just the beginning of a conversation. There isn't a magic number. Is it five conversations with your therapist? Is it yes. 20? But it's more than one. You know, it's probably right. three or four, you know, to work mm -hmm. through. And, and really the chapter list in your book is as good as any uh, sort of agenda. What does it take to kind of work through those things and start thinking about them? And I know we certainly benefited from number of sessions with our counselor and then mm -hmm. the ongoing support of the support group as things became uh, faded into or out of relevance to us. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. Thank you. So thank you so much for the, I mean, the years, the wisdom, I think it's having you having gone through it. Um, you know what, how long it sounds like you have a, a teenager. So maybe 15 yeah. ago, yeah, 15 longer, years old, the oldest. Yeah. Yeah. So that gives, uh, the younger dads out there that are just beginning this process, that voice to hear. Uh, folks can find out more about the work that we're doing here in Ontario and in Canada yes. if they visit uh, donorconception.com. Uh, there's okay. our static webpage. It talks a bit about our meetings, uh, but really where you'll find the more dynamic conversation is on Facebook and you can look for Donor Conception Canada. You can always email me at info at donorconception.com. That email comes right to me. And I'm happy Great. to support and help your audience, Jana, and, and, and collaborate in, in any way possible. It's been great talking Fantastic. with you today. Yeah. And are you writing a book or providing any type of resources at all? Because this would be a great, it is a great area that's, you know, an unmet need. The, the challenge is there. I myself have not <laughs> made the time to write a book either. Yeah. Um, however, okay. I do post occasionally, you know, uh, thought pieces or, or blog entries on the Facebook page. Okay. Um, and mm -hmm. to do interview occasionally, I had the opportunity to be on CBC radio in January, Globe and Mail last nice. year. Uh, but mm -hmm. I, certainly there's some space to do some writing there. Uh, we'll see where we could wedge that in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, life is long. You have maybe time for that. I know, but that's writing it. a book is not, it's no easy task. That's for sure. That's but, right. um, but you, I can definitely hear a book in you for sure. So <laughs> thank you for the encouragement. Of course. Of course. Well, it was great talking to you and, um, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much, Jana. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you would like to follow for more content, you can go to my Instagram and Facebook account at Jana Repnow LPC or follow Three Makes Baby on Instagram. You can get a copy of my book and the companion workbook to Three Makes Baby on Amazon. If you like this podcast, be sure to like and subscribe. Have a great day.